Pray with me. Father in heaven, the good news is that the Lord reigns. You are almighty. And so we pray that now you would reign uh, in this place over our minds, over our hearts, over our very lives. Father, this word might sink deep within us. Uh, There's much that could be against us to keep us from hearing, from listening. And so I pray, Father, that you would overcome all of that, our unbelief, any resistance caused by the evil one, or even our own flesh. So, Father, that you would now come and cause this word to to live in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. I'm just going to read chapter 9, not chapter 10, though that goes with this. But just chapter 9, please. Hear the word of God, Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in uh, Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take possessions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shifrah, Berath, and Kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. 
lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us. Do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Now, again, remember the questions that we're asking. One is, what's the scene? Secondly, what does it mean? Meaning that these incidents were recorded in Scripture, preserved for us for a reason. That, And so we're asking the question, really, when these incidents, when these stories were told and retold in ancient Israel, when they were read and reread in ancient Israel, what did the people get? What did they remember? See, these things are to live on in us, very much like the lessons we learned through family histories. As you, as you sit around with family and tell stories, as you sit around in various places and tell stories, you remember those things and there's lessons to be gleaned, lessons to be learned. And so the question is, what from this incident and how it carries on, what from this incident would remain with them, would stick with them in their memories to say, oh yeah, the Gibeonites are among us, what does that mean? What do we think about that? How does that, how does that affect my worship of God? How does that affect my love for God? How does that affect my trust in Him? How does that enable me to serve Him better? So that's really what we're after here, to pick all of that up. You, you know the scene. Um, Israel, as we remember, crossed the Jordan miraculously. Uh, they went through some spiritual preparation for the battles. That is, the fighting men were circumcised and they were, uh, they were consecrated by that, humbled by, by, by receiving the Passover and all that that meant to them, that another would die in their place. And so then they went and conquered Jericho in a, in a miraculous way. They knew it wasn't their own fighting ability that had won that battle, but rather it was the, the power of God. And then they went up to Ai, and, and they lost that battle because there was sin among them. Sin was dealt with, and then they went on to win that victory in Ai and to take that city as well. And thus, again, a, a remembrance that, 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 that their victory was not based on military strength, but on their faithfulness to God. And then they went up and renewed and, and, and reaffirmed the covenant of God as they heard the blessings and curses read, and they affirmed all of that, and now they're ready to go again. But in the midst of that, there are a number of city-states in this land of Canaan where they're going to go that had heard about the great power of God. And they banded together and said, let's group together, let's come together, and we'll go and attack Israel. Now that's an interesting thing to me. Somewhat irrational, I think. When you think of all that God had done, stopping the Jordan River, uh, uh, causing a shout through the people to make the walls of Jericho fall, all, all of these things, you'd think they'd think, let's run, that that would be the rational response to all of this. It reminds me of the time that they, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that the response of some, because Lazarus was getting a lot of press, and therefore Jesus was too, uh, the, the, the response of some is, let's kill Lazarus. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that's going to work. 
Uh, he was just raised from the dead. So that doesn't seem like a very rational response. This doesn't seem like a very rational response to me. But the response of the Gibeonites seems quite rational, deceptive, sinful, but rational. They begin to think, we're doomed. There's absolutely positively nothing we can really do in terms of fighting to, to, to stave off this onslaught of Israel. God has commanded it. We've seen it happen. He's really God, it appears. So, so what can we do? They had heard about all that had happened in Egypt. They had heard about the command of Moses that said, when you go into the land, destroy all the people in the land of Canaan. But they probably also knew this. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, um, verse 10, Moses gives this instruction. He says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. This is So he's talking to Israel if near a city, but we'll find that these cities are... The city is not in Canaan, but away from there. In verse 11, And if it responds to you peacefully and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little children, and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoils, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. This you, you shall do to all the cities that are far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, the Gibeonites who lived in Gibeon and the various cities surrounding it were really part of these Hivites. And so they knew that they were doomed. And their only chance would be to perhaps make Joshua and Israel think that they were one of these far-off countries, one of these far-off lands, and they could come to them and offer peace and at worst be made slaves. That is, not killed, but be made slaves of Israel. And so, so they, they began to think about how to do this. So very deliberately they said, all right, let's set out all our bread and, and, and get it stale and, and, and let's, let's take our worn out sandals and our worn out wineskins and, and our worn out sacks and all of that and, let's, and our worn out clothes and, and let's make it appear when we get to Joshua and Israel, let's make it appear like we've been traveling a long time and that'll make it look like uh, we're from a far-off country. So then we can offer ourselves to them as servants and say, please, just take us. Don't kill us. Just take us. And so so that's what happens. They do that. Uh, Joshua asks a few questions about them, and he looks at their crumbly bread and, and all of that, and the leaders of Israel do the same, and they go, oh, it must be telling us the truth. Uh, therefore, they enter into this covenant with them. They make friends with them, and so they will not kill them. But they didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask of God, is this the right thing? Are we heading down the right path here? Are they telling us the truth? Are we right in entering into this covenant? But they did. And a couple of days later, they realized that these Gibeonites just live right down the road. A little bit farther than that, but, but within a day or two. I mean, they live pretty close. In fact, they're right in the heart of where uh, the Israelites should be taking the land. And now the big murmur 
against the leaders, of course, against Joshua and the, the leaders of Israel. Why did you enter into this, the people say, on our behalf? And, and you get the impression as an American, I'm reading this through, going, okay, they're going to try to void the contract. I mean, after all, it was misrepresentation. Uh, they lied to them, so clearly they do, they're not obliged to fulfill this to fulfill this obligation. But yet we see that they do. And the reason that Joshua says, no, we have to, we have to maintain our oath, the reason is because that they swore by the Lord our God. So they realized that they had bound God in some way into this, and so they were, they were bound to keep, uh, to keep that promise. And so Joshua goes to them, why did you deceive us? And they, they give their honest answer. They say, listen, we realize we're doomed. We realize that your God is, is really strong. We realize he's God. And, and we realize that Moses gave the command, a decree, that all of uh, uh, people like us should be destroyed. And so we realize we had no chance. So we came to you in a sense to throw ourselves on your mercy. We knew we couldn't do that forthrightly. So we lied about it. But now here we are. And so do to us whatever you think is best. And so Joshua did. He said, all right. In the midst of this kind of a covenant from Deuteronomy chapter 20, since you gave the appearance of a far off country, uh, we'll make you cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the house of God. Uh, Meaning that they would bring the the wood for the altar, they would bring the water for the ceremonial cleansing um, rites and rituals in the midst of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, and, and there they would be. Now the question for us is, well, was that right? Was that right for Joshua to do? Shouldn't he have just said, listen, you lied to us. We're going to treat you the way that we should treat you, which is like another Canaanite city-state, and we're going to destroy you and take your land. That's, that's ours to do. That's what Moses commanded. Uh, you lied to us, therefore we're going to, we're going to uh, take you. Obviously, they didn't. Now, the thing that started this all off, really, was that those nations around Canaan had decided to join together, as I said, to come against Israel. Now, when those nations and the other other little city-state nations around them heard that the Gibeonites had made this peace with Israel, they were angry with the Gibeonites. And they said, well, let's go attack the Gibeonites. And then you know what happened. The Gibeonites came to Joshua and said, Hey, covenant brother, we're being attacked. Come and save us. Now, at that point, I'm thinking, aha, God's finally going to get the Gibeonites. Because they lied to his people. And so now, since Joshua is sort of handcuffed and he can't uh, come against them, God's going to raise up all these other nations to come against the Gibeonites and destroy them, just like they should be destroyed because they lied. But that's not what happens. God comes to Joshua, whether or not Joshua inquired of the Lord at this time or not, but God comes to Joshua, this is in chapter 10, God comes to Joshua and says, don't worry, uh, I'll save the Gibeonites. I'll deliver their enemies into your hand. So you go fight, but don't worry, I know they're not your enemies, at least at this moment in time, they're the Gibeonite enemies, but I'm going to deliver them into your hands. uh, Because they're in covenant with me. So I will do that. And so God does. He sends a panic into all of those enemies. He sends hailstones down and kills a number of them. In fact, the scripture says that more hailstones killed uh, the enemies than the army of Israel did. 
And so hailstones comes. This is that great moment where Joshua says, uh, God, I'm running out of time. I'd like a little bit more darkness here or lightness. There's a great debate of whether or not it was the, whether they continued on in the dark or continued on in the light. We don't need to get into that. But God's, but Joshua said, okay, sun stop, moon stop. And it did. And so God intervened in a very dramatic way uh, on behalf of Joshua to fight the enemies of the Gibeonites who had lied (laughs) to Joshua and thus deceived to be able to get his protection in the midst of all this. So you get the sense that honoring this covenant was the right thing for Joshua to do by that point in time. Now, whether or not they should have entered it in the first place is another question. But once they did, honoring it was the right thing because God honored that covenant. In fact, if you read in Second Samuel, you'll find that there was a three-year famine that had taken place under the reign, during the reign of King David. And so David then inquires of the Lord about this famine. And the reason given for the famine was this, that King Saul, the king before David, had tried to destroy the Gibeonites And therefore, God was now avenging through this famine that onslaught against the Gibeonites by Saul. And there was a tremendous atonement that had to take place. People died because of what had happened against the Gibeonites. And then later, if you read in the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that there are Gibeonites who are helping to rebuild and to guard the wall. They did never seem to leave ancient Israel, this group of people who by deception entered into covenant with God. Rather odd story, isn't it? I mean, isn't it amazing what we find in the Bible? Uh, it is to me, and then I, gotta, then I say, what do I do with this? You know, what does this mean? How would this play out in the minds of the people of Israel? It was written down, it was no doubt read and reread, told and retold, when the passages in Deuteronomy says, teach your children, this is one of the things that they would teach their children. So one of the things we should teach our children, teach ourselves, it should stick in our minds, this particular incident. And what should it bring up? What should it bring up to us? We have to be very careful, I think, when we deal with narrative like this, because we can make it mean all kinds of things. It's like the parables of Jesus. Sometimes you can make them mean all kinds of things. And then at the end of your explanation, look back and go, I don't think that's what Jesus meant. So the same problem here. So let's, I'm going to try to be cautious here and pick out three things that I think should stick in our minds. I think they stick, have stuck in my mind over the years as I've thought about this little incident. First this, there is that expression that they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Now we've worried about, at least I have, worried about Israel ever since they made preparations to go against Ai for the first time. See, there seems to, there seems to have been pretty good communication between Joshua and God. I mean, God just seems to talk to him. He seems to speak to him. Go to Jericho. Do this. On the second trip to Ai, don't worry. I've delivered them into your hands. In this case, after the fact, he comes to them. Don't worry about these enemies coming against the Gibeonites. Fight them. I've given them into your hand. So there seems to be pretty good give and take here between God and Joshua. But yet, when we read about the first onslaught, the first, the first uh, trip to Ai to do battle there, there's nothing about God talking to Joshua at all. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. It just seems to 
quiet about that, so I didn't make anything of it. But I, I just began to think, I wonder if that's a problem. I wonder if they should have inquired of God and God had a word for them, but, but, but they didn't ask. Well, here it's explicit. Here it's explicit that, that they come, these deceivers, to Joshua. And by all appearances, I mean, I mean, what's to pray about? What's to think about? What's to meditate on God's word about? Here they are. They look like they come from a far country. Their, their bread is crumbly. Uh, their, 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 their clothing is worn out. Their wineskins have burst. Uh, their sandals have holes. I mean, it looks like they come from a far country, so I guess they did. So why worry about that? Well, we worry about that because we know the truth. We know what's really going on there. And I can't help but think how often it's easy for us to be tricked by appearances. One commentator on this chapter, I don't particularly like his commentating, but I like his title for the chapter. Uh, his title is The Problem with Common Sense. The Problem with Common Sense. I mean, common sense is a good thing. The problem is it's common to us. And there are times when we need sense that isn't common to us from the one who has said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. We need to know God. We need to inquire of him. We need to ask of him. And all of a sudden, these verses come to me where Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now you say, that's an impossible task. And in some sense, I appreciate that. I mean, they can't be on our knees with our hands folded with our prayer list in front of us 24-7. We know that. But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying there is a sense of dependence all the time. There is a sense all the time in us of distrust of our own selves that we're to be thinking about God and casting our thoughts upon Him and living in His presence all the time. And so our lives are to give this sense of praying without ceasing, being in constant communion with God, that He's that close to us, that a thought about God and a thought raised to Him is nothing that's abnormal or unusual or anything that really takes thought. It just, it just is there because we're constantly in the presence of God. And we know that when Jesus says, Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And we know because we've read enough commentaries over the years that that, that expression ask, those expressions ask, seek and knock are in Greek in a what we call a continuous present. The present tense in, in the Greek language always suggested that it's always in the present. It's always in the now. And so if you, have a, if you read in your Bibles that passage in Matthew 7, may have in its margin, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And we get this sense that our lives are to be this continual going to God. And, 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 and with a sense of, of ascending urgency even, of asking and seeking and knocking. But that's just to be the, 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 the MO of our lives. That we're never to be outside of a conscious awareness of our dependence upon God and our union with Him. To ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. That we need Him all the time. And so not to inquire of the Lord, even during times when it seems so apparent as to what the situation is, is foolishness. And we see the trouble that it put Joshua and the people in because the Gibeonites, while after the fact were in and so forth and so on, they were still to be a nation destroyed. And they weren't. And there they were in the presence of Israel, all those, all those generations. Good for them. Maybe not so good 
for Israel. But there they were. And a reminder again to inquire of the Lord to have his wisdom. For instance, James, in chapter 1, James puts it like this. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And James begins this chapter, remember, count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials. And, and we know what happens during various trials. Confusion sets in. By all appearances, things look really bad. By all appearances, it looks like God isn't with me. By all appearances, it, it looks like God doesn't care about me. And so he says, okay, ask for wisdom. That isn't ask for information. See, we often ask for information. How long is this going to last? You know, how bad is this going to get? It doesn't give us information. He says, ask for wisdom. Wisdom is different than information. Wisdom is different than having knowledge. If you win a Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit, it isn't proof that you're a wise person. You might be, but, but that's no proof of it at all. It just means you have all these little facts in your mind. The question is, do you understand life? The question is, do you know what's really important here? When we go for counsel of another, what are we asking really? What's really important here? What's really valuable here? That's wisdom. And so when we ask for God for wisdom, we're saying, God, teach me about yourself, who you are. Teach me about life and what it really means to be a human being living under you in life. What's really valuable? What's really important? And James says, listen, when you go to God and ask for that kind of wisdom, make sure you really want to hear it. Because we can often say, well, I've asked God for wisdom, but he didn't give me any. What do you mean? Well, this person really hurt me, so I asked God for wisdom about what I should do, and he... He said, forgive, but of course, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I asked for wisdom about, about my job, uh, whether I should take that promotion, even though it's going to mean a move perhaps away from my, my family or a move away from my church or a move to a place. And, 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 and I asked God about that, and I'm getting this sense that maybe I shouldn't go. And that couldn't be right. After all, I'm an American. It's a promotion. Of course, we take promotions. We do that. Oh, my kids want to be in five different sports and, and I've asked God for wisdom about that and I just can't see how to do that. It seems like maybe they shouldn't be in all these things. Maybe they are missing church all the time or missing youth group or whatever, but, but how could I say no? The wisdom of God might be saying no, but I don't really want to hear that. You see, I've wronged another person and so I'm asking for God's wisdom on how to cover that up. And God says, don't cover that up. Go tell them you were wrong and you're sorry and ask for their forgiveness. But I don't really want to hear that. You see. So often we ask for God's wisdom and he gives it. And we don't believe it. We don't believe that's really the wisdom of God because it kind of runs counter to ourselves. It doesn't make us look good. It doesn't flatter us. It doesn't... And so we are a double-minded person. We don't really want to hear it. So we don't receive the wisdom of God. 
And, of course, the place that we go to, to, to receive the wisdom of God isn't only in our prayers. Our prayers are always joined with the word uh, to, to, to stave off the deceitfulness uh, and the schemes of Satan. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit, praying those things together. We're to know the word of God and we're to pray. So we pray that God will give us wisdom from his word. We inquire of him in the midst of his word. Uh, Romans chapter 12, you many know this passage, very familiar to us. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, listen, you need to know the word of God. That was the promise to Joshua. Meditate on this word. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Always let it be in you. And he says, and there you'll have good success, or we could translate that, as you remember from chapter 1, then you'll act wisely. And so he does act wisely after the fact. He does act wisely with the Gibeonites. He says, all right, we've entered into this solemn covenant in the name of God. I'll stick to it. And I will treat you as if you've come from a far country. So I'll make you our servants. You'll be cutters of wood and drawers of water for the rest of your days. So there he follows. But he forgot to think about if you got to inquire, if you got to ask of the Lord before it all took place and found himself stuck. When I think of this story. If I were running around in ancient Israel and I walked into a, a store and there met a Gibeonite, I would think, don't forget to pray. Don't forget to meditate on God's word to have his Wisdom. Second thing. Again, like I say, the, the, the thing that came to my mind, the thing that comes to my mind every time I read this incident, is that Joshua just should have said, you misrepresented yourselves, you lied and deceived, therefore forget it, the covenant's off. But he doesn't do that. And that's always striking to me. On the one hand, I admire Joshua's integrity. And I think, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Therefore, he's, he made that, 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 that declaration that he was in covenant with them and he stuck to it. And, and I admire that. For instance, Psalm 15 puts it like this. First verse says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart? Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And this is the, 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 the phrase I'm after. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's the person who lives with God. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now that doesn't mean that the person who lives with God runs around making promises that hurt himself. But he's saying when you do... If you do make a promise and it, you find out later that it hurts you, still fulfill the promise. Don't back off just because it hurts you. And you get a sense, all right, I appreciate that. That's integrity. But I think there's something else here. 
And I don't know exactly, quite frankly, how to nail it, but I just want to put it in your head or your heart. And that is that we belong to God. And thus, we need to have the awareness that when we enter into a covenant, when we enter into a relationship with another, that we're bringing God into that as well. In this case with Joshua, it was very explicit. They swore in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But isn't it at least implicit with us as believers in Christ because we belong to him? That wherever we go and however we, whatever we join ourselves to, there's a sense in which we're joining God to that. I think of that very often when I go to the movies. Can I join God with this movie? Can I join Christ in this event at this time? Now, Jesus went to some, some wild places with some wild people. So this doesn't mean you, you, know, you can't go to wild places with wild people. But, but Jesus had a particular intent when he went to those places. And he was Jesus, after all, that gave him a little leg up on the rest of us. Um, but I think about that. You know, can I join Jesus in this event? Can I join Jesus in this thought? Can Jesus be tied to this thought? That's why I think Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because he's there in our minds. And for us to think thoughts that aren't pleasing to him is to join him in some sense with that thought in relationships with others. Can I join myself in this relationship because in so doing, I'm, I'm joining Christ. The, the dramatic passage is in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 here, verse 12. Paul writes, verse, well, let me do verse 15. Um, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. You think about that. He says, you belong to Christ. Later in verse 19, he's going to say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, you belong to God. Don't you understand that you've been bought with a price? You're not your own. Wherever you go, Christ is with you. And Christ is in you. And you're in him. Now, obviously, they're having problems with sexual morality here. And so there must have been those who have been engaged in prostit with prostitutes, maybe even in temple prostitution of worship of foreign gods and all of that which they had in those days. But he said, don't you understand that when you join yourself together with that prostitute, there is a sense in which you're joining Christ with her. So he's saying, how can you do that? And so I'm reminded when I think of this incident with, with Joshua, that here he is. And he joined himself with one that by all other understanding he shouldn't have joined himself with. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You're right there. Just to take a look at something. This is amazing to me. Paul is talking to believers about marriage and divorce. And he's talking now, if we begin in verse 12... He's talking to believers who are married to unbelievers. And look how he puts it. Verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, that is to believers married to unbelievers, 
I, not the Lord, doesn't mean it's not authoritative, it just means he didn't hear Jesus say this. To the rest I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So you get the picture there. You have a covenant, and there's a believer and an unbeliever. Now this doesn't mean the believer should marry unbelievers. This means that if you find yourself in that situation, which people do, two people can enter a relationship as unbelievers and one become a Christian. Two can enter a relationship, a uh, marriage, thinking both are Christians and later you found one isn't. Uh, and, and there you find yourself married to an unbeliever. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes people marry unbelievers and they shouldn't. Maybe they didn't inquire of the Lord. And so they ended up in a similar situation that Joshua found himself with the Gibeonites. So that's the circumstance. Now notice how he puts it in verse 14. The reason that they shouldn't divorce. The reason that if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to stay in the relationship, but the rela- if the unbeliever deserts you, then that's another thing. But if the unbeliever wants to stay in the relationship, he puts it like this. Here's why. Don't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. Now, I have to be honest with you. That's a very strange statement. Now, when Paul says they're holy, it doesn't mean they're saved. We know that. But what he's saying is that since they're attached to you, and since you're in covenant with God, there is some sense in which they're treated differently by God because they're with you. And that's true of your unbelieving spouse. And it's true of your unbelieving children. Now, I read that and I just shiver and I go, okay, what's the word there? Well, there's a specific word to people who are married to unbelievers. But there's also a word that says, be cautious in uniting. (laughs) Be cautious in joining with another to make certain that this other is one that God would have you be united to. Because when you unite with them, they're uniting with Christ in some sense. All right? That's just one of those things to live with and think about. Final thing. When I think about the Gibeonites in this situation, I think about the grace of God. (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing to me. I mean, here are these deceivers. And yet God is faithful to his promise to the deceivers, to them. And I have to be honest, in my own little self-centered way, always looking for comfort, (laughs) always looking for assurance, I think if God will be faithful to his promise to them, surely he'll be faithful to his promise to me. Because I'm not quite like the Gibeonites. I don't think I came into this trying to deceive God. It would have been a foolish thing because we come through Christ. We don't come through Joshua the man. We come through Joshua the Christ. Joshua being the Old Testament name for Jesus. We come to Jesus, and he's omniscient. He, you know, we can't con Jesus. We, we can't say, well, we just came from over here. He knows all that. But you know there are times when I say to him, I love you. And he knows my heart. And I know when I say I love him, that I don't love him, love him. I may want to, but then I say, but do I really want to? I mean, I, I know the own de- my own deception in my heart. I can't deceive him, but I can deceive me. 
And when I say, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm sorry, God, that I've offended you and I've hurt you, I understand what that means in the context of my own sinfulness. It still isn't as sincere as it should be. I may not be tricking him, but there's a certain self-deception that's going on there, I'm sure. When I come to worship and I worship and I sing and I try to focus my attention upon God, I know there's a certain measure, quite frankly, of deception in there. And at that moment in time, I think of the Gibeonites lately. I knew this was coming. And I say, oh, yes. But if you'll be faithful to the Gibeonites, (laughs) you'll be faithful to me. And I think how wonderful it was that even though there were servants and slaves, at least some of them were servants and slaves at the tabernacle. So all day long, they would see the gospel. Bring me that wood. Why? Got another sacrifice. Why another sacrifice? Oh, another sinner. (laughs) Bring that water. Why? To show cleansing. Why? Because they say that we need to be cleansed to come into the presence of God. Oh. And so right there, is a witness to the Gibeonites. And right there, they would take that home. You know what these silly Hebrews do? And that's the gospel. Let me urge you to take these events that took place in ancient ancient Israel and understand that this is our history, that this is our heritage, that these are our events and our stories. These are things that we need to plug into our lives and never forget the deception of the Gibeonites. So it will remind you to seek the Lord and remind you and remind me not to enter into relationships, not to go places, not to join Christ with another unless that other is to be joined with Christ. And to always remember the grace of God. He was faithful to these scoundrels. He was faithful to these liars who's faithful to these deceivers, he'll be faithful to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that, that, that the scripture would not fall on deaf ears, but that you would grant us ears to hear. And on the one hand, that we'd get a great sense of quiet before you, knowing we're utterly dependent upon you that we must go to you all the time, lest appearances of sin deceive us. But then, Father, I pray that we're able to get a great sense of comfort to know that you are faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Remind you of our time tonight uh, with Marcus Brooks. To hear from him and to see uh, portions of the Jesus film, I think that will be a blessing to all of us. So please come. Uh, The response to the benediction is this one. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Again, profession of the mouth. When we say Jesus is Lord, there's a sense in which we are saying we'll follow him. And we mean that. Mostly, sort of. Yes, we do, don't we? Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. We say that's exactly right. Yes. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy.
the only wise God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.